tonight. I'm not going to break this up into two or three weeks for you. You're welcome. But in one, in one sentence, the book of Numbers, it describes the historical events uh, of the Israelites between Mount Sinai and the conquest of the land of Canaan. But of course, there, there's much more to the book of Numbers than just that story. Um, and so we're going to get a little bit more into that tonight. For many of us who have, let's just be honest, let's say you started a Bible reading plan, you're going to read the Bible in a year, and you get to... You get to Leviticus and it's kind of challenging. And you get through and you get to Numbers, you're like, you know what, maybe I'm going to do an old, our New Testament reading plan, right? <laughs> we kind of get that feeling when we get to it. We kind of glossed over it. Maybe you've read the book of Numbers. Maybe you haven't. Uh, maybe you've read parts of it. And so tonight I just want to kind of give us a chance to just kind of look at it. Um, because it's, it's, it's a pretty important book. You know, why, why would a Christian read the book of Numbers? Of what possible relevance... Could it be to us today, right? You know, sure, it's in the Bible, but, but aren't there more profitable books to read than the numbers? You know, my hope is that those kind of thoughts and questions will, be dis- will have disappeared by the end of tonight. But yet the more boring parts, if you will, uh, of numbers are crucial to us. We may think they're boring, but they're, they're crucial. In fact, Leviticus and Numbers, with their copious laws about sacrifices and and priesthood and the tabernacle, they contain the very foundations of the whole concept of sacrifice, which, of course, give us the background for, for what Jesus did and what it meant for Jesus to die for us as that sacrificial lamb. So, so why, why read Numbers? Because it's not just the story of Israel, but it's the story of the church, both Jew and Gentile. It's, it's our story. It's written for us. Uh, for our instructions, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It is one of the foundational books of the Old Testament, right? It's just found, which is the foundation of the New Testament. The Christians realize that the opening chapters of Genesis, right? They're pretty important. We see the foundation of the world. We see, you know, we see Noah. We see the covenant with Abraham and kind of that carried out. We know the, the importance of Exodus and what we looked at last week. We know those stories to be true. But then we kind of get to Leviticus numbers. We're like, man, is this really that important to read, right? But, but all of the Pentateuch, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, is foundational to the whole Bible, right? And, it, and it's a great importance for Christians to understand what God is trying to tell us through his, his word. Paul insists in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, that the Israelites' experience in, in the book of Numbers is applicable to you and I as Christians. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. The book of Numbers teaches us about the church on its journey to God's promised inheritance with nothing to hold on to but the promises of God. And that, that's, that sounds like it's for us, right? That's why it's important we read this book. So as Israel, we're, we're pilgrims on the way to the promised land, so we are pilgrims on the way to God's promised inheritance for us. And as such, the book of Numbers has much to teach us. And it's a, a further important point uh, for a Christian approach to the book of Numbers is that Jesus himself viewed the book of Numbers as being about himself. The reason Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interrupted or interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And just a few verses later. 
And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the book of Numbers included in that, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus didn't say, All of the Torah but Numbers is about me, right? He said it's included in there. Thus, the book of Numbers is about Jesus, about his person, about his life, about his death, and his resurrection. Deuteronomy, Psalms, Ezekiel, and the New Testament, they all quote from the book of Numbers as well. So that's just a quick why I think it's important that we read and we study the book of Numbers uh, tonight. So we're going to look at it a little bit more closely as we get into any of these books. It's good to know the background of these things. We believe Moses to be the, the author. We're not sure the exact date, maybe 1500 B.C. We're not exactly sure. Uh, the theme of the whole Pentateuch, and not just this book of Numbers, of course, is the partial fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, right? Because in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God broadly promised Abraham three things, right? That his descendants would become a great nation, that they would inherit the promised land, and that they would be blessed in their relationship with God, and that through them, all nations would be blessed, right? That's what we see in Genesis 12. So the book of Exodus, if you looked at last week, it began 400 years after 70 of Abraham's descendants went down to Egypt to escape the famine in their land, right? We know that from the end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus. After they multiplied greatly there in, in Egypt, they became the people of Israel. So thus, Abraham's descendants were starting to become a great nation, a promise number one. However, Egypt oppressed Israel. So God rescued them from Egypt to bring them into the promised land, right? That's promise number two. And we might expect that after the Exodus, you know, Israel just marched right into the promised land, right? We saw this big, huge, miraculous, you know, Exodus leaving of Egypt. And we're like, man, they're just going to go straight there. However, of course, we know that's not what happened. God first wanted to establish a relationship with his people that he would be their God, and they would be his holy people. In this way, God would bless his people in relationship with himself, which would then make them bless other nations. Promise number three. And as I've already said, the book of Numbers picks up where Exodus left, left off. And the book of, of Numbers is really about arrested progress. In a sense, the book of Numbers really should not have ever happened. It, it took... It took 40 hours to get out of Egypt. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. This book should not have happened. They should have just gone right through. It should, it's an 11-day journey. They should have just walked right over there. So that's kind of the background of, of the book of Numbers. So then we're going to look at, okay, well, how have we been structured this book? How, how are we going to read it? How can we break it down and study it a little bit easier? Uh, so there's a, a popular opinion as to break it down according to three geographical locations uh, of where the Israelites were. So the first one, you have them at Mount Sinai, there in the southern part of the uh, Sinai Peninsula, which is their prepping for departure, and then the journey from Sinai to Kadesh. That's from chapter 1, verse 1 through 12, 16. And then there's another second part would be when they actually get to Kadesh, which is the rebellion and the wandering phase which is like 13, 1 to uh, 20, verse 13. And they travel from Kadesh to Moab, which is 20, verse 14, to uh, 22, verse 1. 
And the third part would be when they actually get to Moab there on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. I mean, yeah, Dead Sea. Preparations for conquest, 22.2 through 32.42. And then just some miscellaneous little things there from chapter 33 to 36. You know, many scholars kind of agree to this three major section kind of thing. But they don't have a, a clear consensus on maybe when, when, when the second one starts and when it ends, when the third one starts and when it ends. It can, it can all kind of get con- confusing. And not to mention the structuring of the book according to this manner, according to geographical locations, assumes, what does that assume about this book? If, you, if you're reading it and you see from one, one location to another location to another location, what does that kind of tell us? That it's chronological, right? You're going from one place to the next to the next. But if you read carefully, you're going to notice something that you probably glossed over before. Numbers 1, verse 1, the very first verse. Here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year. Okay? Second year. Second month, first day. Got it? Second? Okay. Then you go down to chapter 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year. So this chapter 9 takes place before chapter 1. So it's already chronologically not quite lining up, right? So that puts those, those events numbers 1 after 9 1. Um, and so I'm going to give you a, a different way to kind of break down, kind of structure the book of Numbers. And that's kind of how we're going to look at it. And that's two generations of Israelites. That's kind of how, that's, I think that's a really good way to kind of structure how we're looking at this book. So I'm going to throw you guys a softball tonight. Why is it called the book of Numbers? The old math. Old math, right? Not, not Common Core. It's old math. Yeah. Why, why, is it, what, what, why is it numbers? They count a lot. They count a lot. There's a lot of numbers in this book, right? Yeah. That's really it. There's, no, I mean, it's, like I said, I told you, it's a softball. I wasn't playing with you. I wasn't joking. It's just, there's numbers in this book. In, in Hebrew, um, it, it's called Bay Midbar, which is uh, in the wilderness. But then the Greek translators, when they formed the Septuagint, called it arithmoi, and in Latin it was numeri. Because they focus on the two censuses, or sensei, I like sensei, two sensei, um, which is not really the same thing, but two sensei of, uh, of the book of Numbers when they counted there in, in chapter 1 and 26. What's the plural of census? I don't know. A bunch. More than one census was taken. And so that's kind of how they, why it's called the book of Numbers from, not from the Hebrew, but from the Greek and the Latin names they came up with this book. And so in a book where there seems to be little or no structure, these lists kind of become excellent markers of these two major divisions of the book. And so that's kind of how we're going to, um, to look at it tonight. And so the first one is the first generation where we have failures in the desert. This is a good, huge chunk of the book. It's from the very first verse through 2518. And so the book of Numbers, like I said, begins with the, tab- the Israelites still at, at Mount Sinai after completing construction of the tabernacle. After more than 400 years, God was about to fulfill a- another promise made to Abraham. God was about to lead 
the people into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. You can kind of see there on the bottom, Mount Sinai, and they were going to go that way. And this is kind of, they got to Kadesh Barnea. That's where the first place they kind of stopped on the way. So the Israelites, they were totally prepared to occupy their new land, right? They're ready to go, right? Through Genesis, through Exodus, through Leviticus, we see that God had saved them from slavery, that, that God led them on a miraculous journey through the desert, that God revealed to them his holy law, you know, instructions for life and worship, that God had given them the plans for the building of the tabernacle. So according to God's timing, Israel was ready for the land, right? The next part of their inheritance, the next promise, the next part of the covenant. So God is about to lead them in a victorious march to Canaan for their conquest. The only problem, Israelites lacked faith in God and they were afraid. So we're going to kind of dive a little bit deeper into this first generation and see kind of what they did. I want to pause every now and then to focus on a different part as we kind of go through um, the book in, in, in order. And so just one, one quick thing before we get into it. You see, uh, this, is, this is the tabernacle. You kind of see how it was arranged, how, where each tribe was located. And so when the census, since they were counted, the Levites, they were not included in the count, right? Because in the number, they would only count the people who were of they were kept fighting men, men that were over the age uh, of 20, okay? And so the, the, the Levites and priests were not counted. And uh, you can see there the different ways the different tribes around it with, with God, his presence there at the tabernacle there in the center of, of the nation of Israel. Another part we see, go down to, uh, to, number, or to chapter 11. Except this, we're just going to kind of breeze through some of this. There's a lot to cover in 35 minutes. So Numbers 11, we see something called manna. Uh, we've kind of looked at this before. Uh, you know, God provided a daily provision of manna. The word literally means, anybody know what it means? What is this? What is this? That's not, Mark's not asking a question, that's the answer. What is this? What is it? This, you look at it like, what? Yeah, what, what is this? And so... Numbers 11 says it was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of uh, bedellium, a type of spice. So here we have several million people wandering in the desert. You ever thought like how they ate, what, you know, how they, how they feed that many people in the West Texas in the desert, right? It, it, it had to have been... Just a logistical nightmare because there's really no way to, ha you know, would they have crops? There's no way to kind of do everything like that. And so they complained to God, which is like what they do, about how good they had it as slaves, right? And then the food they ate. So, so God provided manna, a miracle bread from heaven. You know, it's, as, you know, it's provided only for six days of the week with a double portion falling and being there when they woke up on the sixth day so they could, uh, you know, get enough for the seventh day so they could still rest. On the Sabbath. So just a few things. So now we get to the edge of the promised land. So the Israelites traveled from Mount Sinai to the southernmost tip of the promised land, a place called Kadesh Barnea. We saw that map a while ago. A trip that should have taken less than 11 days. And even during this short trip, the Israelites again did what they do when they complained against God and Moses. So Numbers chapter 13, verse 27. 
And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Enoch there. The Amalekites drew in, uh, dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. So these twelve spies went out to the land of Canaan. Ten of them came back terrified, and I mean, and for good reason. There, they said they saw the Nephilim, the giant fallen ones. They were the, the hybrids that were the products of mischievous angels or spiritual beings commingling with, with women that Mark talked about in Genesis. And verse 33 says they felt like grasshoppers next to these men, right? I mean, I'm not a tall person, okay? I, I know that. I get that. Even standing next to Brandon, I feel like a little grasshopper sometimes. That's why I've never, somebody talk on the stage I try to be up on the step above just so we can kind of see someone. I mean, I get this. I understand what's going on. So they were scared. And even Goliath eventually traces lineage back to these, these kinds of people. So they had reason to be scared of these giant men, at least in our eyes, right? So sending the spies into Canaan was a test from God, an opportunity for the Israelites to put their faith in God. And it would take a miracle for the new nation of Israel to conquer the overwhelming odds that the that they, they face the people if they entered into the land of Canaan. So here was the test. Which is better, human logic and reason or God's commands? You know, two of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, they had a different attitude from those other 10 guys, right? They basically said, this, this, is, this land is rich, it's full, it's marvelous. Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. By their own strength? No, of course not, by faith. Because God had said, go take it. And that was enough for them. So when God is on our side, our enemy is outnumbered. So unfortunately, the people rallied against, around the ten spies with their bad report. Look at in uh, 14, verse 2. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, with that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Uh, that was a big mistake, because God was listening. He heard their murmuring, and he gave them their desires. Ultimately, everybody is personally responsible for his or her decisions, right? Right? Like your decisions, you get those consequences for your decisions. But sometimes, one person's actions can have a powerful influence over others' perspectives. And choices. Matthew 18, 6 through 7 says, But whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would, be, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So your choices, yes, they affect you, but they can affect other people. So with Saul, that they murmured, they cried, and God's like, All right, this is what you want, and here it is. And, and next in this story, uh, of this first generation and the theme that happens a lot through 
much of the Old Testament really is this theme of, of judgment. In, in verse 11, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. So God's judgment comes when people reject him. They refuse to believe in God. And we, we read these stories, right? And we're like, man, I can't, I don't understand how they can just see this stuff and, and not believe. But you know what? I wouldn't be that way. I, I would be willing to believe. All right, let's just, let's just be honest. Now, if we were there and we were amongst these people, would we always be that willing to believe in what, you know, what, was going on. There's a good chance we'd probably be like these other people, not so much the two. Again, that's a speculation. But you know, we kind of we have this different perspective because we're on this side of history, right? We can see what happened. We're like, no, that would never be me, but you know, it's not be too quick to judge the actions of these people. And the numbers fourteen twenty six And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked generation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. That's not what you want to hear uh, from, from God. Your dead body shall fall in the, this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithfulness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Sure this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. So now we know, and we may have heard that they wandered for 40 years. Now we know why the number was of 40, because that's how long, you know, one year for each day that they spied in, in there in, in the promised land. So God's judgment on Israel was that they would not live in the land that he promised them. They didn't want the gift. God is not going to force them to take the gift of the promised land. So the Israelites would wander in the desert for 40 years. And like I said, that each person, each one of those people that did that, that didn't want to go in over 20, they would die. So this takes us to the next part of the first generation. We have the, the wilderness, when they're just kind of wandering around in the wilderness. So here in this part, we have them traveling from Kadesh Barnea to Moab. <coughs> Where do we, what do we know about Moab? Where, what's, what story in the Bible do we know comes from the land of Moab? Ruth and the other, I mean, there's a bunch, yeah. And this, is, this is, except Ruth is where Naomi and, and goes and, and finds Ruth, where son finds Ruth. And so that, and they come back. So this is kind of, you can kind of see where it is there to the southeast part of the Dead Sea is where Moab. So it wasn't horribly far away from from. Uh, Jerusalem and the land of Israel. Uh, not many of the events, of course, of this 40 years are recorded because that would be a really long book to read, right? 
I mean, I'm not going to give you everything of every day. And so we're going to get you a few of the stories. Uh, one to bring out real quick is the rebellion of Korah against the priesthood. Uh, we see in chapter 16 how Korah rose up against Moses and Aaron with 250 others, having just been punished to one of the wilderness for 40 years, right? That happened just two chapters before. And so they were like, you know what? Um, let's, maybe we can improve our chances of getting in. Maybe God was just messing around. And so we're going to see if we can get somebody else to take us in. That's, that's what we need. And so Korah was questioning why Moses thought that he was more special than, than he why are, you, why are you more special than me? This is what he was saying, in a sense. And so Moses basically was like, all right, well, let, let God show us who, who, uh, you know, who's more holy here. If you know the story, it's kind of crazy. The, the, uh, the ground opened up, swallowed Korah, his family, their households and goods, people who were like on Korah's sides, and then closed back up. Did it do what? Y'all hear that? The ground opened up. Swallow some people and then close back on them. Nobody's, that's just crazy. So not only do the effects, again, not only does it, you know, these efforts fail, and these people, you know, the ones who rebelled against Moses and God die, again, their choices, their actions cause other people to die, cost other lives than just their own. And we have some other miscellaneous laws in, in 17 and 18, then we get to um, chapter 20, and we have the disobedience of Moses. We're going to see a story that changes the life of Moses forever. So starting in verse 7. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before they rise to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. All right, so remember back in Exodus, in chapter 17, after Fedom, the Israelites, they needed water, right? This is not the first time we've seen this story. God told Moses to take the staff and to strike the rock, and the rock would bring forth water. Years later, here they are at, at Mirabah again, they needed water. This time God told Moses to speak to the rock and it would give water. And Moses was frustrated and upset with his people, which we kind of understand. Instead of speaking, he struck the rock again. Water came, but Moses had misrepresented God because he let the people think that God was angry with them. So Moses' penalty for disobedience was that he could not enter the promised land. And so Moses, he had spent 40 years in Egypt in preparation for his leadership position. And 40 years on the backside of the desert being prepared spiritually. He experienced incredible drama of the Passover and the Red Sea crossing. And then he shepherded this complaining, grouchy, grumpy bunch through 40 years of hardship in the wilderness. But God told him that he would see the land from the top of the mountain when they entered, but he would not be able to go in. 
what, what, what did Moses do that was so bad? In, in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, Paul tells us that the rock was Christ, speaking idiomatically, of course. There were two episodes with this rock, right? We looked at one in Exodus. In the first one, the rock was struck, right? And they benefited from living water. The second rock was not supposed to be struck. It was supposed to be just talked to and water would come out. If Moses had, got, had done what God told him, these rock incidents would have kind of modeled the first and second comings of Jesus, right? In the first one, first coming of Jesus, Jesus came, he was struck, he was beaten, and we have, you know, living water, John 4. In the second one here, it was supposed to just be talked to, but it was struck. And so because Moses blew it, he, he blew this model here of who Jesus was and what he's representing there with his first and second coming. But of course, we know God wasn't finished with Moses yet. He was denied entry into the promised land. But we're going to see more of him when we get to the Gospels and, of course, the book of Revelation. We see him again on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus talking about the second coming. Uh, and many people believe that he will be one of the two witnesses who show up in Revelation chapter 11. Um, so there's, there's more of Moses uh, to come. And we have a story called, of, of the brazen serpent over in chapter 21. I'm going to give you, you know, just one more guess. What do you think is happening? What do you think the Israelite people are doing in chapter 21? They're, they're grumbling. They're complaining because this is what they do, right? <clears throat> so, like, you know, they're like, this is all they did. Walk around and complain every day. <laughs> I guess not. I'm just, I mean, surely they, like, played, invented a sport or something. I don't know. Probably not. But anyway, so there, so Moses had a problem with these people's complaints and gripes for forty years, and it's it's funny to hear him talk to God because he's, he's he's like, God, I didn't ask for this job; you gave it to me. I don't like these people, basically. <laughs> and so, in in response to their complaints, God sent fiery serpents that killed anyone that they bit. So Moses prayed, and God agreed to provide a remedy. But I want you to notice the strange remedy that he chose. Moses was instructed to place a brass serpent on a cross-shaped pole and put it high up on a hill. Anybody who got bit by the fiery serpent could look up at that serpent and at that cross serpent thing and be spared. Why, why this, this remedy? Jesus explained it in, to Nicodemus in John 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, so, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. <clears throat> so everyone who looks at it, everybody who looks at Jesus will be spared. Verse 14 is a prelude to one of the most famous verses we have in the Bible, right? John 3, 16. The, this, the symbol, it's a strange symbol, right? The brass serpent. In, in the ancient Near East, serpents were widely associated with, with life and healing because of you know, how they would shed their skin. So this pre-scientific observance that they had of this ability led people to assume that the serpent had regenerative power, right? We know that to be not, not true anymore, but that's how they believed it. Even today, the most common insignia associated with the medical profession contains two intertwined snakes on a pole, right? I don't know if you ever noticed that. That's something to, I don't know, look for next time. Then you have a cool story in chapter 22, um, the oracles of Balaam. Uh, this is a really uh, interesting story with a talking donkey. Donkey what? Donkey. Donkey. Anytime I... Anytime I read this story or hear this story, all I can picture is 
the donkey from Shrek talking. That's, that's, how I, that's how I hear the donkey's voice in my head. I know that's not biblical. I know it's not correct, but it's, this is what I do. I'm sorry. Not really. Um, and so you got Balak. He was king of the Moabites. He asked Balaam to go curse, <clears throat> to curse the Israelites. Balaam went to God to see what he said, and God said, hey, don't curse those people. They're blessed, right? So Balak was mad. He sent more people, and, and he offered anything that Balaam wanted. He's like, hey, whatever you want, it's yours. Curse these people. And Balaam still refused to curse the Israelites. Eventually, God allowed Balaam to go, but only to say what he allowed him to say. And on the way... Um, God got angry with Balaam for going on the trip he's allowed to go on. We don't really know why. It seemed like kind of contradictory. We don't know if it's because of the attitude or the motivation for Balaam changed. We don't, we, we don't know why God got angry. Something happened that we don't know about that's not in the Bible. So God sent an adversary to block the path. And it's funny that Balaam, Balaam's job, he was a professional seer, S-E-E-R, professional seer. He's along this path, and they're, they're, they're wrote, the path wasn't very wide. I mean, like, two donkeys could probably walk. It's not a wide little path, right? And so this professional seer, you see, could not see the adversary that was in front of him, but his donkey could, and that began to talk, which Numbers has some pretty cool stories, if you haven't noticed yet. So this takes us to the second part of the structure of the book of Numbers, of uh you know, getting ready to enter the promised land. Anybody have any questions? I hope not, because I don't want it. No, I'm just kidding. That's fine. Anybody no questions? And we're good. This part's a little bit, a little bit shorter. Um, it introduces a, a new generation of Israelites. There's nothing negative is recorded about this group of Israelites. They were obedient to God. Uh, well, at, at least more so than the first generation who died in the wilderness, right? This actually contains some miscellaneous laws. Uh, you know, the charge of, of Joshua to succeed in Moses, since Moses can't go in anymore. Uh, a battle and a victory against the Midianites. Stages in Israel's journey and, and land allotments for the Transjordan tribes. I'm like, oh, you're going to get this land, you're going to get this land. So there's not a whole lot of detail about the second generation. You know, it's a testimony of the older generation that failed to trust God, right? That's what this is, that they, they were obedient to God. So the book of Numbers forces the reader to answer an important question. Have you learned from the past? Will you obey God or will you run from God? So that's a question that you can ask yourself. Have you learned from the past? Have you learned from the nation of Israel's past? Have you learned from your past? Will you choose to obey God and to live like Jesus or will you choose to disobey and live the life that you want to live? This, I mean, that's, that's a question that the reader here, I think, was posing to, or the, the authors are posing to their readers in something that we can and should ask ourselves as well. So I kind of want to look at why I think uh, the book of Numbers was written. Uh, I think one thing, is, of course, is just to record the history of the Israelites between Mount Sinai and the conquest of Canaan. I don't think there's really anything too heavily spiritual about that. It's just good history and record-keeping information for us to have, right? It was written down so people could know what happened between those two events. That seems pretty... You know, straightforward. I also think it was written to teach that the 40-year wandering in the desert, like I said, the trip that should have taken 11 days, was punishment from God for the Israelites' disobedience and lack of faith. 
You know, we joke, and we're like, you know, how, how come they couldn't find their way? How come they can only wander for 40 years? They couldn't see, you know, whatever. We make jokes. But carefully reading this book, it's only because they disobeyed God and they showed a lack of faith that caused the extended spring break they experienced, right? Of all 12 spies that trusted and believed in what God had told them, those 40 years would have probably been a whole lot better for them, right? And the third thing is to demonstrate that even in the midst of his wrath, God had not forsaken his people totally. Let's go back to those sensei lists, right? God commanded Moses to take a census for several reasons, right? To recruit men for war, members over people, men over 20, to allot work assignments for taxation or tithes, to arrange the tribes for marching and camping, and to unite the once enslaved people into a unified people. The first census was taken a little over one year after the Exodus. The second census was taken in the 40th year after the Exodus. Like I said, each census counted men uh, fighting age over the age of 20, who probably represented, you know, about one-fourth of the population. Of course, that's just guessing. We don't know for sure, but there's more than just these people because there's other people there. So the totals, the first census had 603,555. Forty years later, the census was 601,730. There's not, if you noticed, as I read them out loud, so you may not have caught it, the population did not grow. That's part of the punishment. There was 2,000 people less than the first one. You know, so there's, that 603,000, if that means that, if that's one-fourth of the population, that means there's almost two and a half million people left Egypt. Two and a half million people. Did you hear that? That's a lot of people to try to get out of Egypt to the promised land. You know, it's just amazing. These high numbers are evidence of God's blessing and fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Remember, they, got, they went to Egypt with 70 people. And here, 100 years later, there's two and a half million, you know, give or take, whatever, people leaving Egypt. I want to take a look at a few major theological things from the book before we get ready to close. I think one big, huge thing in this whole book is the presence of God. In Leviticus, we saw the instructions and in the construction of the tabernacle, right? In chapter 9, 15, and 16. On that day, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle of the tent of the testimony. That evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. So in Numbers, God literally dwelled among his people in a very unique way. And even in their 40 years of wandering in the desert, God was still in their midst. His presence was still there. Another thing is the power of God. God cared for the needs of his people, and he always met those needs, right? God guided them every day from the escape of, uh, from Egypt. We saw this in the cloud by day and the fire by night. God provided them food, bread, and meat, provided them water. They had to worry about the food they would eat. It would always be provided. And what was provided was just enough for each person, right? And God protected their clothing from wearing out. Deuteronomy 29.5 says, I've led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. That's some high-quality clothing, right? You know, this, this is just, again, shows you how... God was still in control and the power that he had. And the third and last thing here is the patience of God. The history of Israel is 
filled with numerous examples of disobedience and a lack of faith in God. Yet God remained true to his covenant with Israel, even though God wasn't really obligated because, of, I mean, the covenant was broken by, by the Israelites. So God wasn't obligated to fulfill it, but because he is God, he's going to, right? I believe that that phrase is the main theme of the book of Numbers. And despite the people's rebellion, God continued to work among them and waited for them to follow his will. So as part of this patience of God, we see yet another occurrence of, of, of intercession prayer, you know, the, the prayers of a righteous person on behalf of another, right? Numbers 14 and then James 5, 16. We kind of see that happening here. Because through the prayer of Moses, God spared the people because God was like, all right, I'm just going to get rid of these people already again. And Moses was like, no, let's, no, let's just, no. And he prayed and, and interceded on behalf of the nation. God spared them. All right, so, so we started the book of Numbers very incredibly briefly. Like I said, it's 36 chapters. It's a lot to cover quickly. So what does this book, what does it mean for you and me? In one sense, you know, a moralistic interpretation of the book of Numbers you know, are, are to be rejected because we'll never obey God in our own strength and enter this, the land, right? That is why Israel, in the end, was exiled from the land. However, God promised a new covenant and a new heart for his people by which he would be led, we would be led to obey God and be forgiven our sins. And in the end, Jesus is the only one who truly obeys God. You know, he alone enters heaven, God's promised inheritance through his perfect obedience, by his blood that he shed on the cross. He enters ahead of us, prepares a place for us, and cleanses us by his blood of the new covenant so that we can then enter God's promised inheritance with our sins forgiven and with cleansed hearts. Yet you and I, are too, are on a pilgrimage. Hebrews 3 and 4 pick up on the disobedience of the first generation. And they apply the lesson to Christians that we are on our way to the promised inheritance. But if we refuse God, as the Israelites did, if we reject Jesus, if we reject God's plan, then we will not enter God's rest. God's promised inheritance. So thus on our pilgrimage to heaven, we are warned against disobeying as these Israelites did. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 10 refers many times to incidents here in the book of Numbers, warning Christians not to disobey as the Israelites did. And we're encouraged that God is faithful to his promises, that he has kept those promises in Jesus, and he will bring us safely into the promised land. So that's the book of Numbers. Any questions? Oh, okay, all right. Well, that was easy enough. So, yeah, if you have, Mark, is there food for them to take if they want some food? Maybe. A lot of rice. No? A lot of rice. If you want, if you want a lot of rice or cake, don't mix them together because that sounds gross, but take them separately and take them home. <laughs>